Father, we ask now as we turn to your word that your Holy Spirit will lead us. Father, we pray that, that the truth will come over so clearly with such clarity. Lord, that we'll be excited. Lord, that we'll be so reassured by, by what the future in eternity holds for us. So, Father, come amongst us now in your Holy Spirit. and Lord, just reveal the greatness of Jesus to us that bit more. Amen. Right, now, before I dive in to tonight's talk, I just want to hark back one little bit to the last we did in the series of Salvation. Because I, I, I made a, best, a bad estimate in regards to timing. Because the last time we did the Salvation series, when we were dealing with what happens when you die, alright, uh, sort of, I, I kind of got, my notes were so full, I thought, my goodness, this is going to be a long one, you see. Now, you'll probably remember that I sort of went through that like a scalded jackrabbit as well, only to discover that there was plenty of time. But in process, there were certain things that I skipped over quickly that I'd have liked to have homed in on, and there are one or two things I left out completely. So if you just turn to Matthew 12, I just want to, one verse which we should have turned to, but I skipped it out because of the time factor, and it's on this thing, you'll remember, that I was demonstrating that the place of the dead was in the centre of the earth. Now this is tremendously important because even many evangelicals, you know, so-called Bible-believing Christians, they, they poo-poo the idea of taking things like this literally. But if you just go to Matthew 12 and find verse, verse 40, and remember we were seeing that the place of the dead, the three compartments, one for the demons, one for the unbelievers, one for the believers, was in the centre of the earth, alright? And in Matthew 12 verse 40, and this is Jesus himself speaking, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Can you see that? Now again, this is Jesus confirming that the place of the dead was in the centre of the earth, and I just wanted to get that verse in so you were aware of it. And in fact, what we got last time we left our talk, alright? that we saw what happens when you die, alright? You know, we saw the places of the dead, Tartarus, where the demons were, we saw the unbelievers' compartment, we saw the believers' compartment, or paradise, and we saw how after Jesus died, he went down into paradise, and then when he ascended, when he rose again from the dead, he took paradise back into heaven, alright? So last time, we were looking at the whole thing, what happens when you die, alright? But of course, the situation that everyone was left in was this, that we've got believers uh, sort of floating around in paradise without a body and we've got unbelievers in the centre of the earth in the unbelievers compartment without a body which brings us on to the talk tonight we've got to carry carry this through so tonight it's I ain't got no body Be because that that that's the thing that we've got to look at now and that in actual fact the talk tonight is the second of the two talks on what happens when you die so in a sense last time was talk one on that subject and this time is the last or the second talk but also tonight will be the first of two talks on the rapture and if that's getting confusing, then you'll just have to get the tapes and try and work out what I'm talking about later. Anyway, let, let's kind of dive into this subject. We've got to see, right, at death, people are left without bodies. Now, what happens in that regards? Now, 
in dealing with this subject, first of all, there's a heresy that we've got to deal with. Now, there are some heresies that you and I would never have to deal with, all right, because, I mean, they're just not relevant to us. I mean, too few people believe them, or those who do are in these really weird sects and things like that. So, there are some heresies that aren't relevant to us. This one is because it's in the mainstream churches, and it's something, it's a heresy that has plagued Christianity for the 2,000 years it's been around. Now, you've got to understand what this heresy is. The early church grew, was established at the time of the apostles. The early church was established and then grew in the climate of Greek philosophy. Now, in Palestine and the surrounding world at the time that the early church was growing, the political power was Rome. It was in the Roman Empire. But before the Roman Empire, or before the Romans were the big boss, before them, the world power was Greece. So the Romans toppled the Greeks. But even 300 years into the Roman Empire, nevertheless, through the first 300 years of its rule, the predominant philosophy was still the Greek philosophy left over from the political rule of Greece. So you've got to understand that the spirit of the age, the philosophy that the early church was surrounded by as it went and preached the gospel to non-Jews, was that all the time it was hitting up against Greek philosophy or Platonism, because Greek philosophy was largely founded on the works of the philosopher Plato. Now, the fundamental thing that you need to know about Greek philosophy, it's the bit we are interested in, is that Platonism introduces a fundamental divide between the spiritual and the physical. Greek philosophy saw that there were two universes. There was the universe of matter, and quite apart and separate from that was the universe of spirit, alright? Now, what happened was that they relegated the universes of matter to being almost unreal and evil. So the Greeks believed that the real, the, you know, the thing that was really important was spirit, or spirituality, and that the material universe was, was almost unreal, but it was evil of itself. And in fact, Plato said that the body is a prison house. Because, of course, they realise that human beings have a spiritual side to them. Well, of course, we're created in the image of God. But they saw that the spiritual bit of us human beings was trapped in this evil body. All right. And that, 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 in that sense, near the two shall meet. There was this utter divide. Spirit was opposed to matter. Matter was opposed to spirit. Spirit was considered good. Material, matter itself, was considered to be evil. Now, this had two consequences. In some, it had the consequence that they became very kind of ultra-disciplined, all the time trying to deny the pleasures of the body, you know, all being super spiritual. That's how it affected some people. But for others, because the ordinary man in the street just isn't able to live consistently with that, what they tended to do is they say, well, look, matter is evil. Physical things are evil, but we're stuck with it, so what does it matter? 
and, and, and they said, all right, material things are evil, but we can't help but be material, so we will be ultra-materialistic, as it were. And this is the reason why the Greeks at the time of the early church were morally so degenerate, can you see? Because they said, therefore, there's nothing we can do about it, morality doesn't matter, you see. Even to the point that in a rich, upper-middle-class Greek home, um, I mean, sort of, for the Greeks, sexuality was not tied up with marriage, sexuality was tied up with their religion. And in their religions they had temple prostitutes and things like that. And that, I mean, a, you know, a rich Greek would actually bring people into his home to train up his children in sexual experience. This was how the Greeks felt about it, you see. So what we've got to do is to understand that the thinking of the Greeks was that matter is itself evil, alright? and that the spiritual was the only true and good reality that there was. Now, bearing that in mind, go to John's Gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Because we can understand some, something that John the Apostle says now in his Gospel. And remember that John the Apostle was writing a Gospel that was primarily going to go out to the Gentiles. It was primarily going to go out to Greeks and people who have been affected by Greek mythology, uh, by Greek philosophy. Now then, in the Greek philosophy, they believed that there was a God. But it was slightly different from us. The Greeks didn't believe in a personal, actual, objective God. You know, rather like the new modernistic theologians. What they did is they believed that there was an unknowable God that was the true reason at the back of everything there was. Can you see that? So this God was utterly unknowable. You couldn't know him, but nevertheless he was the reason that everything that existed, existed. All right. And they had a word for this, um, this idea of the unknowable God who was the reason behind everything, and the word was Logos. And the English translation also is word, <laughs> alright. So the word they had for this unknowable reason at the back of everything that there is was the word. That was what they called it. Now then, bearing that in mind, let's read uh, just the beginning of John's Gospel. First of all, verse 1. Remember, he's writing to Greeks. He's not writing to Jews who had an Old Testament uh, upbringing. He's writing to Greeks who were influenced by Platonism. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And they prick up their ears. Oh, we know all about this, they say. So, in the beginning was the unknowable reason at back of the universe. And the Word, this unknowable reason behind the universe, was God. Alright, was with God. And the Word was God. And all the Greeks are shaking that, that's right, they've got it, yes, they understand their Platonism like good little boys, these Christians do, alright? But then go down into verse 14. And John says, and the word became flesh and dwells among us. Now can you see what John's doing? He's saying, look, you Greeks, you are right to believe that there is a, a reason behind the universe. You are right to believe that it's not just an accident. He says, but of course, what you've got to realise is that this God who you do not know, and this God who you believe to be unknowable, he is knowable, and he has become knowable by becoming a human being. 
Now then, bearing that in mind, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there's a bit, a verse here, which has possibly puzzled you, and now it will become clear. 1 Corinthians 1, we'll start reading at verse 22. And in verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Now here's Paul saying the Christian gospel was a stumbling block to Israel, but it was folly to the Greeks. And the reason is this. You see, the Jews had no problem with God becoming a man. The Jews, they tripped over the gospel because they couldn't conceive that once God became a man, he could suffer and die. So that's why the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews. But the reason it was folly to the Greeks was this. The Greeks believed that matter was evil. All right, And the early church went around saying, but God has become himself material. Can you see? That was the hang-up that the Greeks had with the Christian gospel. They were unable to take seriously the idea that God could become material because they believed that materiality itself was evil and was second grade and that it was spirituality that really mattered. And of course in Christianity we see there is no divide. There's no divide between spirit and matter. God became flesh. There is no divide between them at all. But you see, the thing with this Platonism is that it, in, in the first three, four hundred years of the church, it got incorporated into Christian doctrine. Now, this didn't happen through the apostles, because of course the apostles, their doctrine was infallible. But after they had died off, and You've heard the phrase like the early church fathers, alright? Now, regrettably, many Christians, they give as much credence to the early church fathers as they do to the apostles themselves. Now, as I'm going to demonstrate, a lot of the early church fathers were what I can only call thoroughgoing plonkers, and some of them were utter heretics to boot. Because, for instance, if I name two of them, Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandra, now they were among these early church fathers who were very influential in, as it were, popularising Christian doctrine. But some of the early church fathers were Greeks, and these two were as well. And what they, I mean, they were genuine Christians, but what they believed was this. They believed that Greek philosophy was on a par with the Old Testament. And they came up, or they had the idea, or the belief, that God had given Israel, in its past, Moses and the Law and the Prophets. But that in the past, God had given to the Greeks Plato. They believed that Plato was a prophet of God equally as much as Moses was. So they said the Jews, they had Moses and the law, but us Greeks, we had Plato. So immediately, Platonism was elevated to the same level as Christianity and incorporated it into it. Yet the problem was that Plato put forward the doctrine of demons, because I mean what Plato, Plato's philosophy is just, it's, it's just not true. How can it be? We know that matter isn't evil. Plato was a false prophet. Now what happened in the church was this. 
It led very quickly to the church becoming anti-material. It led to the church becoming monastic. Can you see what I mean? Hiving off into monasteries. How can you serve the Lord when the world's distracting you? It led to the attitude of being down on sexuality that we still haven't recovered from. This is where all the heresies about sexuality have, has come from. Not from the Bible, it's come from Platonism, which considers matter to be second class and itself evil. The Catholic Church, historically, has its roots in Greek philosophy equally as much as it has its roots in the Bible. And for instance, I mean, people like Augustine and the early Catholic Church Fathers, if you like, they taught that the only time it's not sinful to have sex is in order to have children. So if, if, you, if a man and wife make love for pleasure, that is a sin. Love making is so you can have children. But the problem is that even if you're making love just to have children, the problem is you're going to enjoy it. So what they had to do was they start, ha they start having to come up with different kinds of sins. There were the sins you could avoid and there were sins you couldn't avoid. And if, you're gonna, if a husband's going to make love to his wife in order to have children, which they would say is the only reason it's alright to make love to your wife, the problem is, I mean, they probably enjoyed it, so they'd have to repent of that, but it was a sin that was designated that it was unavoidable because you... Can you see, this is where all the hang-ups that the church has had. If you go to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and I'll, I'll show you how it was very easy for these guys to twist the Bible so that it made it sound as if the Bible was saying what they were saying. Now remember, bear it in mind as well, think back on the strain in Christianity that has always been of the monks with their hair shirts or sleeping on nails and things like this. The idea that if you if you put physical hardship on yourself, this will make you more spiritual. Alright. Now listen to what Paul says here, 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll start reading from verse 24. But notice the context. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in, in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable. Now what Paul's doing, he's, he's comparing the Christian life to an athlete in training. And he says, look, if men will put it, you know, put a load of effort into training to win a running race, how much more will we really be putting our whole hearts into serving the Lord? Now remember, he's using the picture of an athlete elsewhere. He talks about soldiers. Here he's using the athlete. Now listen to this. He says, well, I do not run aimlessly. He says, I'm not swanning through my Christian life. He says, I'm giving it my best shot. I'm putting everything I've got into it because I love the Lord. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. He says, I'm not shadow box. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in training. This is the real thing, as far as I'm concerned. But listen to this. He says, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And in actual fact, that word in Greek, it's not disqualified. It means having failed to meet the test. But the point is, he says, I pommel my body and subdue it. 
Now immediately the Greeks come along and say, look, there you are, Paul was into hurting himself. He was down on the body. You see, it doesn't mean that at all. What Paul is saying, an athlete, if he's in training, he can't have a steak before he goes to work in the morning, then another one at lunch, and then another one when he gets home. Can you see? He's got to watch his diet. He, you know, can you see that an athlete, he's got to have his body so that he is in control of his body rather than his body being in control of him. And what Paul is saying in the same way, I'm not going to be dictated to by all my lusts and appetites, rather I am going to dictate to my body, I'm going to be the chief in my body because I've got Jesus to enable me to do so. So this is nothing to do with being down on the body at all. Can you see, it's simply Paul saying we've got to get a control of ourselves. We've got to really go all out to serve the Lord in the same way that an athlete trains in order to win the race. But can you see these guys come along, I pummel my body, they say, and of course out come the chains and the whips and stuff like that. Now can you see that the Platonism, how it crept into, I'm not thinking what John is thinking, what I'm thinking, John you're ever so naughty, I'm not talking about that, but you know, th this whole thing that the monks, you know, they used to wear the hair shirts, the idea if you kept yourself in extreme discomfort, this made you more spiritual, well of course it doesn't in any way at all. And can you see this is where the church is hang-ups about sex have all come from. They've come from Platonism. And in fact, in Genesis, if you read about the creation in chapter 1, you've got the various stages of creation. And of course, the first stages that come are nature. You know, God makes light and darkness and then the animals and fish and birds and stuff like that. And after every stage, at the end of each day, it says, and God saw it and it was good. So at every stage, nature, as it comes into being, God's verdict on it isn't what Plato's verdict was, not that it's evil, not that it's second class. Behold, it was good. But it's lovely to know that the final stage of God's creation was creating men and women in his own image. And after getting five times, God saw it and it was good. After he created Adam and Eve, it says God saw it and lo, it was very good. And do you know what the first thing God told Adam and Eve to do was? He said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, Adam, make love to Eve now. I've given you a wife. Can you see that that is the exact opposite of Platonism? And it's, it's the exact opposite of this strain, this heresy, that has always somewhere been hanging around in the church. So therefore, what we are seeing is this. I'm going to be showing you tonight that far from matter, far from the human body being somehow, you know, just added on as an afterthought, the body, our physical existence, is totally important. And quite apart from what many Christians believe, eternity is not floating around as a disembodied spirit. Eternity is going to be spent in a body, albeit, as we'll see, a slightly better version of the one that we've got now. And you see, a lot of Christians, they still have this idea that man is a soul to be saved. That the only bit that matters is the spiritual bit. This is crazy. Absolutely crazy. It's not what the Bible says at all. Go to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And verse 22. 
he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now Paul is saying salvation is incomplete until you've got a glorified body. Salvation is not whole until you've got your glorified body. And that we've seen that man is tripartite, body, soul and spirit. Let's think about it. The human spirit needs salvation. Why? Because the human spirit is dead through trespasses and sin. When you believe on Jesus, your spirit is brought back to life again by the Holy Spirit. It functions again. Salvation for the spirit. Salvation for the soul? Well, we've seen we are souls, aren't we? The soul means us, the real us. Well, of course, we're saved because we've turned to Jesus and become disciples. But also, the bit that gets left out is the body. There is salvation for the body as well. And that is what Paul calls being adopted as sons. That one day salvation is going to hit our bodies because we're going to get glorified bodies as well. And of course we've already seen it in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh. This heresy that puts a divide between the spiritual and the material, it was blown apart once and for all because the Word became flesh, you see. Jesus himself I'm sorry if this upsets you, I'm sorry if this isn't spiritual enough, Jesus is a material being. A lot of people, they don't like a God who's a material being. Sorry, Jesus is a material being just like we are. The Word became flesh. There is nothing wrong with the body whatsoever. And in fact, it's more than that. We know that when Jesus came down to earth 2,000 years ago, we know that he took on an ordinary human body exactly like the ones we had. But if you go back to the beginning of this course when we were looking at the great divide and Adam and Eve in the garden, we noticed something else as well. We noticed that the Lord God was walking in the garden, didn't we? And we noted that the Bible says that the first person of the Trinity, Father, he's spirit. He doesn't have a body. We saw that the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. The third person of the Trinity doesn't either. He is spirit. But the second person of the Trinity, in the New Testament called Jesus, in the Old Testament known as the Lord God, we saw him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The truth is, the second person of the Trinity has always had a body. Ask yourself, where did God get the design for the human body? Where did it come from? I mean, was he sort of like scratching his head throughout eternity? Now, how many legs should we have? How many arms? I wonder if three noses might be best and kind of, after loads of drawings and trial and error, he came up with two ears, a nose, two eyes, you know, biped, etc, etc. No, can you see, we are actually based, our physical bodies are based on the design that the second person of the Trinity's body has always been. And when we're told in the Bible that we're created in the image of God, it is literal. We are created physically in the image of God as well. Father and the Holy Spirit don't have a body. Jesus now has an ordinary human 
body glorified, but before he came down to earth, he had his own physical body anyway, and always has had it, and that is where the idea for our physical bodies came from. We are literally created in the image of God, and physically, literally, in the image of the second person of the uh, of the Trinity. So therefore the Lord God was walking in the garden. Jesus has always had a body. So can you see the body is of vital importance. Do not think in terms of salvation of the soul. Do not think that salvation is some highfalutin spiritual thing. Because when Christians talk in the spiritual terms that they do, now, I mean, I'm not afraid to use the language of spirituality, but when I hear a lot of Christians use their spiritual language, it becomes very clear to me they don't actually understand what the nature of spirit is according to what the Bible says. Because many Christians, spirituality is always six foot off the ground, isn't it? I mean, it never connects with the reality. You know, that there's an earth down here with worms in it and bugs in it and we walk on it and so did Jesus. Can you see, this divide between matter and spirit has ended up with the gospel that has come over to our society as merely being pie in the sky when you die. The Christian gospel is pie now, down here. But because of this divide we've had, it's totally... Uh, we've given a tremendously wrong picture to the world of what Christianity is all about. And tonight, we are going to be homing in purely on the body and the importance of the body and what future salvation means for the body. Because past salvation and present salvation, well, in that sense, I mean, sort of, that's not especially to do with the body. But future salvation is entirely 100% to do with the body. And uh, if this isn't spiritual enough for you, well, tough. Right, now go to, go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Because we left, at the end of our last talk, we left, for instance, all the believers who have died in paradise, in heaven, with the Lord, but without a body. And this is what we've got to see is not on, you see. And the Lord himself says, this isn't on. I'm going to do something about this one day, he says. And in fact, he always planned to. Now, 1 Thessalonians <laughs> chapter 4. And let's see what Paul says. Now, we're going to start reading from verse 13. And bear in mind that at this point in the series, we're dealing with future salvation from the presence of sin, or what I've called, or what the Bible calls glorification, being set free from the presence of sin, and we're seeing that it's through the return of the Lord, the Lord's return. Right, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Now here, Paul is talking, he's writing to them, he says, look, I don't want you to be upset about your brothers and sisters who, who have died. 
popped their clogs. <laughs> let's let's define our turns. Copped it, snuffed it, what you like, blown out. All right. Now he says, I don't want you to be upset for these people, and he now goes on to explain why. But firstly, why in the Bible, when it talks about believers dying? It doesn't actually call it dying very often, it calls it falling asleep. Now why is this? This has given rise to the doctrine of soul sleep, that when you die you go into a kind of, um, you know, or sort of like a hyperdrive, deep space, being frozen until you arrive, soul sleep kind of condition, alright? You know, what's it called cryogenic suspension that you sleep until the second coming? Rubbish, it doesn't mean that at all. What we're going to see is that this idea of when you die, you fall asleep, is in fact referring to the body. Now we're going to see this. That when you die, or physically, you fall asleep because your body sleeps. Your old body, this current body, sleeps. And the reason that it sleeps is because one day it's going to get woken up and you're going to rise and the old bodies, as we're going to be, see, be turned into a beautiful new body. So it's sleeping because it's only a temporary state. It's only suspended from action, you know, for a limited time. Like last night, you know, I went to sleep and I was suspended from action for a limited time, wasn't I? Now, some would argue that, you know, I mean, a lot of people can't see much difference between me when I'm asleep and awake. <laughs> uh, fine, okay, no problem. But can you see sleep is merely suspension of activity for a limited time, all right? Now then, bearing this in mind, death for a Christian is called falling asleep because you lose temporarily your body. Do you remember in John 5 verse 24, Jesus talking about people who believe on him, he says that he has already passed from death to life. Because, you see, the thing is, we were born, born again, we were made alive when we believed in Jesus. Physical death is simply losing our bodies temporarily. Can you see? And in actual fact, there's a, a set of believers, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Because you have already passed from death to life. So the moment you die, you're, you're consciously with the Lord. But you fall asleep in the sense that your body is temporarily taken from you. Let's just go to Acts. Acts of the Apostles. Let's actually see this, Acts chapter 7. Do you remember when Stephen got stoned to death? He wasn't very diplomatic, um, and they stoned him to death. It's very hard to be diplomatic when the Holy Spirit's leading you. And, and, and because he, was, he preached exactly the wrong thing to the wrong people at the wrong time. Alright? And the result of that was that they kind of, uh, they did him in. Now let's, let's read from verse 16. Alright? No, let's start from, um, uh, yeah, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was later to become Paul the Apostle. And as they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, and there's some terrifically good news here. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you remember, the spirit returns to God who gave it. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Can you see that lovely? He fell asleep. Why? Because he lost his body. He went to be with Jesus because Stephen's going to get his body back later on. So can you see, it's not death, alright? 
it's sleep. Alright, it's not a sense that you die and it's bad. He simply goes to sleep, he loses his body, and he's with the Lord. Now, can you see, these guys are doing their worst. Satan, through the Jews, is trying to kill... He doesn't like Stephen at all. And Satan wants to do something horrible to Stephen. Alright? But can you see, Satan couldn't kill Stephen. Alright? They stoned him. All he could do was rock him to sleep. <laughs> oh, forget it. <laughs> Right, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, one, so, so we're, right, 1 Thessalonians, so verse 13, we're, we're, we're seeing this, alright, that this idea of sleep, falling asleep, it's when believers are in that state of not having their body. Now then, verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying, obviously all the believers who have died, they're asleep, they've lost their body, and they're with Jesus in paradise. But he says that the thing is that when Jesus comes back, during the time Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. So it's going to come a time when Jesus comes back and he's going to bring back with him all the believers, all the believers in the church age who have died, they are going to come back with Jesus. Now when this happens, verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive alright, on earth, alive, when this, this happens, who are left until the coming of the Lord, because at this coming of the Lord he brings all the, uh, the dead Christians with him, that we shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying, but when, when this thing happens, we're not going to precede them. Now, can you see, there's something that's going to happen, but it's going to happen to them first, not us. Now, it's not dying, obviously, it can't be that, because they have preceding us, because they're all the, people, all the Christians throughout history who have died. So Paul says that we shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So something's going to happen, but it's going to happen to them first, and only after it's happened to them is it going to happen to the Christians who are still alive on earth. And what we're going to see is that it's this event that Paul is referring to here where all the dead believers get their glorified bodies. And we're going to see that at this coming of the Lord, Jesus comes, all the Christians who have died and are in paradise with him, but without a body, he brings them back, all right? And when he comes back with them, they get their glorified bodies before those Christians who are still alive get theirs. Let's move on. Let's go down into verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Remember that. With the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this isn't the Anglican Church. And the dead in Christ will rise first. What's the terminology? Falling asleep and rising, it's the body. 
Here, the dead in Christ, their bodies will wake up. They will be reunited with their bodies first. So at this thing, alright, Jesus will come back at the sound of the trumpet of God and all the believers he's brought back with him who have been in heaven with him over the 2,000 years they will get their new bodies at that point verse 17 then we who are alive because remember at this coming of the Lord on a particular day there are going to be Christians on the earth who are still alive then we, those Christians who are still alive who are left shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Now then, we shall be caught up with them. This, this phrase, caught up, in, Lat um, in Latin, the, the Latin word is rapio, to be caught up. That's where we get the phrase, the rapture. It's not a biblical phrase, it's based on the Latin language, the Latin translation of the Bible. And the, what happens is that at this event, Jesus, this coming of the Lord, Jesus comes, he brings with him all the believers who are in paradise with him, but they haven't got a body. So when Jesus comes on this day, he brings them with him, and they all get their glorified resurrection bodies. They are raised from the dead, literally, they're reunited with their body. Do you remember the last time we saw that death is when you are separated from your body? Well, now they come alive again because they get their bodies back, only it's a much better body than the old one that they left behind. And as soon as that happens, all the believers, all the Christians on the face of the earth are caught up. We join them in the air on this grand occasion. And when it says caught up, all right, we who are alive shall be caught up. That Greek word is harpazo, and what it means is to snatch away. The picture is, I mean, sort of say you're sitting there with a fiver and I'm hard up, and you open your fist long enough and I grab it. I've harpazoed, I've caught that fiver away. And in the Greek, the emphasis is on the release of power necessary to do the grabbing. So that what you've got is as Jesus comes back on this day, bringing all the dead believers with him, they are raised to get, you know, they're raised from the dead, they get their glorified bodies. And then immediately, as if the Lord's hand in his power, he kind of reaches down in his power and he just snatches us all up. He says, right lads, finished, let's go. And he grabs us and we are all caught up and we ascend into the air with Jesus and all these unbelievers and so shall we always be with the Lord and what we will see next time is that at that point we then all go back to heaven for seven years alright and we all stay with Jesus in heaven for seven years so what we've got is this at the rapture Jesus returns he doesn't land on earth he's in the air that's all he's in the air and then he goes back to heaven but he comes and he's in the air he's bringing with him all the Christians throughout history since he rose again from the dead all the Christians who have died alright so he brings them back and immediately they get their glorified bodies alright then as soon as that's done he snatches us up you see and up we go but the problem is this 
they get their glorified <laughs> bodies because they've lost their old ones, so they get their new ones. But what about the Christians who have still got their ordinary bodies? Because, I mean, if this happened tonight, we'd all be caught up to Jesus, but we've all got mortal bodies. Well, that's not fair, is it? Because all the ones who have died, who, who copped it, you, you know, all, all through the years, they've got glorified bodies and us still, still here with our aches and pains. So, so what happens to us? Well, go to 1 Corinthians 15. And we will see what happens to us. 1 Corinthians 15. First of all, we'll start with verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, the whole thing is about getting a new body. Now, I, we haven't got time to go through all the verses, sadly, but read these verses when you get home or tomorrow or something. Now, first of all, in verse 12 through to 19, Paul proves that there must be a resurrection body. And he bases his argument simply on the fact that because Jesus rose again from the dead, therefore one day we are going to rise again from the dead if Jesus got a new body we must get a new body because that's what resurrection and being a Christian is all about so in those verses 12 to 19 he's just saying there is a resurrection body now go to verse 35 verse 35 now then he says someone will ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come you foolish man what you sow does not come to life unless it dies and Paul uses the picture here that if a believer dies his body goes into the ground rather like a seed alright and because it dies it will produce fruit that because it's gone into the ground and died one day it's going to come forth much more glorious thing than it actually went in and then right through down to verse 41 and we'll read verse 41 he says there's one glory of the sun another glory of the moon another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory and he's going through the fact birds fish animals stars and he's saying that everything in the universe has a body fit for its environment. Uh, a, a fish's body is fitted for water. A bird's body is fitted for flying in the air. And he says in exactly the same way, the human body is fitted for its physical environment. But of course, with the resurrection body, it's got to be fitted for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So he says, therefore, this new body has got to be a glorified body, just like Jesus's. It's got to be free of the limitations of space and time, and obviously the limitations of sinfulness as well. So Paul's simply going through here that because everything God creates is fitted into its environment, because our destiny is to spend an eternity with God in the new heaven, on the new earth, in a new universe, therefore our bodies are going to be glorified just like Jesus's. Go to verse 49. <clears throat> he says, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who was the man of dust? Adam. He brought death. He died. His body went into the ground. So will ours if we die. But who is the man of heaven? Jesus. Now in the same way that our bodies at the moment are like Adam's body, when we get our resurrection body, our bodies are going to be exactly like the body of Jesus. All right, It's going to be immortal, indestructible, absolutely glorified with the full glory and image of God.
Now go down into verse 51, because the question that we were asking is, right, when the rapture happens, what about those of us down on earth, all right? When it, you know, who are alive when it happens. We know that we get caught up to Jesus and we join them all in the air while all the dead believers are getting their glorified bodies. But listen to this, lo, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. So here's Paul saying, not every Christian is going to die, because there are going to be some Christians alive at the rapture. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, now, what's the last trumpet we've seen in 1 Thessalonians? It's the rapture. You see, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. There's the dead believers who come with him, getting their glorified bodies. And we shall all be changed. See, the point is, the, the believers who are alive when the rapture comes, as they go up, by the time they get there, they have got glorified bodies as well. Alright? So, therefore, we're seeing now that all the church, all the believers, everyone in the New Testament age from the time that Jesus rose again from the dead to the time of the rapture, when the rapture happens, all the Christian church are going to be alive and kicking with glorified bodies just like Jesus. And in verse 53, Paul says, For this imperishable nature must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. Verse 30, 34, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? And you see, of course, the point is that for us, we're going to get a body, a resurrection body, that cannot die. It can never die again. So in that sense, therefore, death has been absolutely beaten in our lives. Alright. So then, we have seen thus far when the people who are members of the church, the Christians, alright, all the believers from the time of Jesus being raised from the dead up till the point of the rapture, we've seen that they all now have glorified bodies. They're all raised from the dead, reunited with their bodies. But, if you go to Daniel, chapter 12, <coughs> Daniel chapter 12, <coughs> and the first couple of verses, because there's something here that may surprise you. Daniel 12, <coughs> um, start from verse, we'll read verse 2. And multitudes... And the multitude who sleep in the dust of the earth, see death, nobody, sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Because unbelievers are going to be raised from the dead as well. Unbelievers are going to get a resurrection body the same as we are going to. It's going to be at a different time, though. Go to John 5. <clears throat> the words of Jesus. John 5. Verse 28. Jesus is saying, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good, I believed on Jesus, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, i.e. rejected Jesus, to the resurrection of judgment. 
So can you see it's not just believers who get resurrection bodies. Unbelievers do as well, but not at the same time. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the timing of when everyone gets their glorified bodies now. And also, what you've got to realise is that we still haven't dealt with the people who are alive in the Old Testament. So let's see when everyone, at what point in history, all these different groups of people get their glorified bodies. Go to Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> now in Revelation chapter 19 is the second coming of Jesus and the end of world history. And in Revelation 20 we have the beginning of the millennium, of the thousand year reign of Christ. And verses 1 to 3 give us this, that Jesus ruling on the earth for a thousand years with Satan and all the demons kicked down into Tartarus. Now then verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now what's happening here, all the believers who were alive during the Great Tribulation, which starts after the Rapture, all the believers who were martyred, but martyred by the Antichrist, they get their glorified bodies at this point. They are raised from the dead. Alright? Let's keep going. Down into... um. No, verse 4. So here, the, the believers who go through the Great Tribulation, who are converted after the rapture of the church, all those who die through the Antichrist, they get their glorified bodies at this point, at the second coming of Jesus, prior to the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. But there's another lot who get their glorified bodies now, because at the same time, all the Old Testament believers they're raised from the dead, they get their glorified bodies at the same time. Now then, how, how do I know that? Go to Job. Go to Job. The book of Job. And find chapter 19. Job 19 and verse 25. Bear in mind, Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It was the first book of the Bible written. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. There's the second coming. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed... So Job is saying, at the second coming, he knew all about this, at the second coming, after my skin has been destroyed, he says, this is long after I'm dead and gone, he says, then, from my flesh, I shall see God. Can you see, Job is saying, long after I'm dead, there's going to be the second coming, alright, my Redeemer will stand on the earth, and then, from my flesh, I will see him. Because Job knew that when the Redeemer comes to Israel at the second coming, that is when he was going to get his glorified body. So all the Old Testament saints get their glorified bodies now at the same time. So we've got all the Old Testament saints are raised from the dead, 
all the church saints, the church age Christians, are raised from the dead, and all the Christians who died in the tribulation are raised from the dead as well. And of course the believers in the tribulation who are still alive at the second coming, they remain mortal and they repopulate the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ. Alright, now then, let's keep going. Verse 5, uh, still Revelation 20. He says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now the rest of the dead are all the unbelievers. And we're going to see that they, alright, they get their glorified bodies a little bit later on. Alright? Now then, uh, and it says, this is the first resurrection. And the first resurrection, alright, has three stages. The first resurrection, alright, is simply the phrase given to when believers get their glorified body but it has three different stages alright now then let's actually see this verse 6 blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection that's when believers get their glorified body over such the second death has no power alright and we're going to see that the phrase the second death is being thrown into the lake of fire if you go into verse 14 then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire so what we've got now is we're going to see that unbelievers are raised from the dead after the thousand year reign of Christ alright now let's try and sort out the order alright of this so far what we've got is this all believers are going to be raised again from the dead but they come in a particular order alright we've seen certain phrases the first resurrection is that phrase in the Bible which means believers getting their glorified bodies we're going to see it has three stages you've got the second death is the lake of fire alright when unbelievers having been raised from the dead are thrown into the lake of fire so then first resurrection is believers the second resurrection is unbelievers the first death is physical death the second death is when unbelievers are raised from the dead and then thrown into the lake of fire now then go down into verse 11 all this is going to fall into place in a few moments, I do promise. And in verse 11, we are now at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. And now the whole universe is destroyed. And in the past here, uh, we've looked um, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, when Peter talks about the universe being dissolved by fire when God destroys the universe because his plan is to create a new one. Now here in Revelation 20 verse 11 we've got now it's after the thousand year reign of Christ the heavens and the earth are destroyed alright now let's see this then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them there is the destruction of the universe as we read about in the second epistle of Peter chapter 3 verse 7 alright now in verse 12 and 14 and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened 
Also, another book was open, which is the Book of Life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it, death and Hades came up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Now, can you see, here we have the dead standing before God, and we have death and Hades gave up the dead in them. At this point, immediately prior to this great white throne judgment, the final judgment on unbelievers, all the unbelievers throughout history, from the word go, who have been in the centre of the earth, in the unbelievers' compartment, they are now raised from the dead themselves. And they get resurrection bodies. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And what you've got here is this. At the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, all the unbelievers who have rejected Jesus throughout history, they are raised from the dead, they receive a resurrection body. They are then thrown physically into the literal physical lake of fire for eternity but remember what have we seen about the resurrection body it cannot die it is indestructible and what we have is this unbelievers in the lake of fire with a resurrection body are going to be continuously being burned by flames in a body that will be continuously restoring itself to health can you see? So that if you were to chuck me on a bonfire, however horrible that would be, it wouldn't be long, my body would give up, wouldn't it, and I'd die, and that would be the end of it. These unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire in an indestructible body which is self-restorative. Now this is the eternal suffering and torment of the lake of fire. Bearing what I've, mind, what I've said in mind, go to Matthew and something that Jesus said. Matthew 10 and verse 28. And this is Jesus himself speaking. Matthew 10 verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy soul and body in hell. Now, if you look in the notes, hell is Gehenna. And we saw last time Gehenna was the Jewish name for the lake of fire. Now, let's see what it's saying, what Jesus is saying. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The soul, that's you. Alright? So, so, I can kill your body, but I can't kill you, can I? Because you carry on existing. Alright? He says, but rather fear him who can destroy soul and body in the lake of fire. Because in the lake of fire, when God throws unbelievers in the lake of fire, they get an indestructible body back. But what's important here is this word that Jesus used for destroy. Destroy has different meanings. One of the meanings it has in English to, is to annihilate completely. That is not what this word means. The Greek word here that Jesus uses for destroy is apolumai. It does not mean annihilation. It means ruin or it means loss. And it was used by the Greeks of perishing food. 
food which is going rotten. Can you see what I mean? Now, do you remember the picture Jesus used of Gehenna, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched? Their worm dieth not was a picture of, you know, that refers to the body. And that what you've got is, is this. You are literally rotting and being physically burned in the lake of fire in a body where your worm dieth not. Your body won't die. It won't die. Can you see? And it's an eternal, irreversible condition. Do you remember last time I told you that the reason that the Jews called the Lake of Fire Gehenna was they took then the name from the Valley of Tophet which was called Gehinnom. And what happened at Gehinnom was they had this idol, Molech, and they did human sacrifices by fire. Do you remember? They, Molech had this big, the statue had its arms like that and a big bowl. They lit the coals and they threw the babies to be burned alive on the coals. And that they then used it, after that was crushed out, and Israel didn't do that anymore, they used it for rubbish dump, including the bodies of executed criminals, and it was burning the whole time to keep putrefaction down. Now can you see, they were pictures of the literal lake of fire. This is the eternity that awaits unbelievers. Right, go back to 1 Corinthians 15, because we're going to pull the threads together now, and you'll get the whole picture of what we've been discovering. 1 Corinthians 15, and this time verse 20. <clears throat> but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you remember we saw in our study a few times ago on the baptism of the Spirit, Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first little bunch, as it were, of the harvest, of a massive harvest to come. We've discovered tonight that the harvest was not just believers, but everyone is going to be raised eventually from the dead. So then, Jesus, he was the first to be raised from the dead. All right? because he was the first to get a glorified body. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, do you remember we saw Adam was the representative head of the whole human race? We all died in Adam. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is literal. Unbelievers are going to be made alive. Everyone is. Everyone is going to end up being raised from the dead. Why? Because Jesus has beaten death and when Jesus does something he does it properly. Verse 22, as in Adam all die in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23, now here's the thing I want you to get, but each in his own order. But each in his own order. So what Paul is saying here is that everyone is going to be raised from the dead. Everyone is going to get a resurrection body. He says, but different groups of people are going to get them at different times. So there is a sequential order here, and Paul gives us the order. Just look at it. He says, each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Jesus was the first to get a resurrection body. So there's Jesus. Group 1, Jesus, as the firstfruits, offered up to God as the, wave, as the wave offering. Then, um, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There is the resurrection from the dead of the church, at the rapture. All the church age believers who have died. 
then if you go down into uh, verse 24 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and there you've got unbelievers being raised at the great white throne judgment on the unbelievers and they're raised from the dead now let's just go through this order what we've seen Jesus was raised from the dead first with a glorified body alright so he was the first fruits the next batch of people to be raised from the dead are the church alright the church believers that is going to happen at the rapture the next two lots who get raised from the dead at the same time are at the second coming and that will be all the Old Testament saints with all the Christians who died in the tribulation because remember after the rapture there's no believers on the earth but God raises up 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel and lots of people get converted you see so at the second coming all the Old Testament believers get their glorified bodies along with the believers who got um, who got killed and martyred by the Antichrist during the tribulation alright and then you're gonna have the fact that at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ because that is then the earth is repopulated by all the believers who were alive at the second coming they are still mortal they repopulate the earth so then by the end of Jesus' thousand year reign they have all got their glorified bodies as well and then last all the unbelievers throughout history are raised at the great white throne judgment so then what does that leave us with verse 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death now why is death the last enemy to be destroyed because up until the great white throne judgment people are dead but at the great white throne judgment no one is dead anymore death has been beaten 100% by Jesus everyone is now alive and in verse 26 there when it says uh, that, that the last enemy to be destroyed that Greek word for destroy is our old friend Cattagio you remember we saw him in Romans 6 it means neutralized reduced to inactivity completely annulled made irrelevant can you see death is beaten 100% because everyone is now alive and everyone has indestructible resurrection bodies now then back into Revelation and just tying the very last threads this is just so you get a picture of the chronology because in chapter 21 then you have God creating the new heavens and the new earth so a new universe is created by God now a new planet earth is created by God now alright and of course what happens is if you go through Revelation chapter 1 is that then heaven the new Jerusalem which is outside of the universe completely heaven the new Jerusalem lands on the new planet earth and the eternal state is quite literally heaven on earth God says I'm gonna move so God because God likes his pad he likes his home 
but he loves us and he wants to live with us and the church is the bride of Christ you see and under Israeli tradition you 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 lived in the wife's home all right you lived where she came from so Jesus has married us the church God makes his home with his creation so God brings his place down to our place and our eternal destiny is literally heaven on earth in glorified bodies and of course with all the unbelievers everyone who did not want salvation who did not want Jesus totally separate in the lake of fire we now have at the end of this total and utter deliverance from the presence of sin through the return of Jesus we are glorified exactly like Jesus has been we share everything that Jesus has in closing just go to John the first epistle of John one John chapter 3 and verse 2 he says beloved we are God's children now but it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he appears at the rapture we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and of course at the rapture we're all going to see Jesus in all his glory and because we're seeing Jesus in all his glory we will immediately be changed receiving resurrection bodies and whether you're dead or alive at the time doesn't matter <laughs> it's got no bearing on it whatsoever so there you have it salvation for the body deliverance from the penalty of sin this is what future salvation yet holds for us now we've seen the vital importance of the rapture all right next time because do you remember I said that whereas this was uh, part two of the talk that last time was part one this at the same time is part one <laughs> of a two set talks on the rapture all right because next time what we're going to do is still remaining on the rapture we've seen what the rapture is we've seen it's important and where it fits in to the plan of salvation but while we're on it I want to deviate slightly from the general theme of salvation and answer a question that's tremendously important and that is to show you precisely when the rapture happens relevant to the second coming and the end times now don't expect me to tell you what date it's going to be on that's not what I'm talking about but really in effect what we're going to ask is this that we've spoken about the great tribulation can it be demonstrated from the Bible whether or not the rapture is before the great tribulation and the antichrist or whether it's after the great tribulation and the antichrist so next week that is what we're going to see we're going to find out from the bible whether the rapture is before the tribulation or whether the rapture is at the actual second coming and i'll show you very very clearly that you can know from the bible without any doubt whatsoever what precisely the answer to that question is and if you're wondering what the answer to that question is well you'll have to come back next time